Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com and the Boyd International Aviation Forecast Summit this October in Cincinnati. Visit AirlinesConfidential.com to attend at a reduced rate. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. As you might know, he teaches a college course about airline economics at George Mason University. This fall, I hear it's going to be virtual. Does that mean he's only virtually the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza? Oh, that's funny. Well, he was excited when he heard Democratic National Convention was going to be in Milwaukee because he wanted to go to recreate the beginning of the Laverne and Shirley show to do his own schlemiel schlamazel down a Milwaukee street. <laughs> but when that went virtual, he decided I'll just stay home and do the podcast. It's Seth Kaplan, <laughs> NPR's here and now transportation analyst. You know, when you said Milwaukee, I thought for sure you were going to say Midwest Airlines and, and the, uh, <laughs> the the warm cookies and all the great things about that. That's what I associate Milwaukee with. But yeah, Lerford and Shirley. Well, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Uh, today, we're going to start with some good news or is it really good news? And usually I'm the co-host of this podcast with a few of our listeners love to hate. But this week, someone takes issue with something Seth said. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with the week's news. Okay, Ben, I promised good news off the bat, and we'll start with that. And I mean, this number in a vacuum is unambiguously good news, at least within the current context. Uh, every Monday morning, I start refreshing those TSA throughput numbers <laughs> to see how Sunday looked. You know, what, what are they going to post that? And then you know, finally they do. And, and the reason I'm always interested in the Sunday numbers is because those are always the highest of the week. And in the COVID era, this past Sunday, uh, nearly 863,000 people passed through TSA checkpoints in the U.S. And that is a new COVID era record. I, I've, and the reason I care so much about this right now is that I keep waiting to see if there's a week where even that goes into reverse, right? We keep hearing about very sputtering demand recovery and all the rest of it. But for what it's worth right now, more people, however slightly, more people are still traveling than the week prior. The 863,000 was up from 832,000 a week prior. Uh, for context, uh, you know, it was like 80-something thousand at the worst day back in April. So, I mean, it's 10 times as much as that. On the other hand, that 863,000 this past Sunday compares with uh, nearly 2.6 million who traveled on the equivalent Sunday a year earlier. So, Still much closer to the bottom than to usual, but at least still ever so slightly moving in the right direction, at least based on that metric. Of course, the real question is how things are going to look going forward, right? That's the looking backward number. That's the best we could do as far as people actually traveling, and that's kind of a real-time number. But we know the airlines are still really struggling with demand uh, going forward, there was a report by the AP about surveys that people just still don't have very much confidence in traveling, not as much as airlines would hope they would have. And Ben, looking at the schedules for September, this is somewhere where we sort of see things sliding back a little bit. Each month since May, looking at Sirium schedule data, 
domestic seats in the U.S. And that's really all I'm looking at right now. I mean, international is just is, is so far gone. And in a lot of cases, there's not a lot you could do about that because of, of border restrictions. But domestic, where at least most people are allowed to travel if they want to, they might have to quarantine and all the rest of it. May was the low point as far as that, of course, as airlines were reacting to what had happened in April, virtually nobody flying. And then each month going forward, there was a higher percentage of seats scheduled for the month compared to the same month a year earlier. And for August, that was up to 57% for August 2020 of August 2019 numbers. But now finally in September, as of now, and airlines are still trimming a few seats here and there, that's back down to 52%. 52% of the seats flying this September scheduled as of now uh, compared to September of 2019. Now, look, airlines could get lucky, right? I mean, they, they, could ha- they could be conservative and then demand could rebound and planes could actually be fuller in September because of the reduced capacity. But as of now, can you help us sort of weigh all of that and tell us how things are looking to you compared to, I think the last time I kind of asked you this big picture question was a couple weeks ago. Are, are things looking any noticeably better or worse uh, than they did maybe right at about when August was starting when things were had become considerably more pessimistic than they had been? Well, my sense, Seth, is that uh, the industry is kind of treading water, not really moving forward or backwards so much. You know, uh, when I worked at Spirit, we used to joke that uh, September was the only month of the year that had six weeks because it started in the middle of August from a travel <laughs> standpoint, <laughs> from a travel standpoint. So my point is that seasonality of travel in the United States drops off a lot at the end of August. And September is one of the lowest travel months of the year without COVID. And so it is not uncommon for the industry to reduce capacity in September just because that's the shaping of normal travel. And if you think about it in a normal year, kids are going back to school. It's the end of the summer. You know, people that may have maybe were traveling on vacations in June, July, and August, those are all done now. And it's back to sort of normal life with kids in school and parents going back to work. Now this year, back to school may be you know, back to the kitchen table or bedroom to get on your laptop, right? But Maybe still, in the back of an RV or something traveling around the country, right? But I guess the point is it's complicated to look at a reduced industry capacity schedule in September and ascribe it all to COVID when, in fact, some of the natural seasonality would be to pull down in September. So some of that is just reacting to not as many people travel in September as do in July and August. So you're going to right. pull down and, and some that, and, just to be smart. And some of it is people are still nervous about flying. And so yeah. what, what September really needs is for businesses to start booking again. And what the industry counts on in September and October is not so much leisure traffic filling up the planes, but that there's enough businesses traveling, paying maybe a little bit higher average fare to make the economics work. And that's what the industry is going to be looking for this fall is will businesses really start flying again? And October is historically a month when travel volumes overall are low, like they are in September, but it can be a decent month because of business travel, right? That's when everybody, you sort of get past the summer holidays, Labor Day, all that. And October for airlines, not a huge number of people traveling, but usually a healthy month 
for profitability because of business travel. And, and I guess that'll be an interesting one to look at, right? And, and we'll have to wait, obviously, it'll be a backward looking thing because that's not something you can tell based on schedules. But that might be when you would hope some businesses, at least at some obviously greatly reduced level, would be traveling again if you're an airline. I think that's right, Seth. And I've said before, I'll repeat it again now, that if businesses start to show some signs of recovery, and again, that doesn't mean a positive year-over-year comparison or you know, all of a sudden the light switch and all these businesses start sending their people out on the road. I don't mean that at all. But if there's a sense that businesses are more willing to pay for employee travel to go out and let's go build some of that revenue or let's go check on this facility that we haven't seen for six months because we didn't want to travel or something like that. If they start to see that in the fall, I think the industry will perceive that as a really good sign that potentially they could have a reasonable summer 2021 in leisure travel. Because if businesses are willing to start traveling again in the fall, maybe that means that families might be willing to travel again next year sometime. Failing that, I think the industry could be looking at a very dismal kind of 2021, and that could be a real negative thing for the whole industry. And of course, as with so much else in the world, this all depends on bigger questions in the airline industry, right? Uh, you know, when's there going to be a vaccine above all? And even that's not from one day to the next. Everybody's going to be vaccinated and feel confident and have the money given the recession we're in. But but that'll be a big moment. And if you could know that, which you can't, no, none of us know when exactly that's going to happen, then you could start making at least some kind of better guess than we're able to make. By the way, uh, that, that overall number I told you, 52% of the seats flying this September compared to last September. And that's why I'm comparing like for like months. September always works worse than August, just looking at the comparable month a, a year earlier. But uh, airline by airline in the U.S., that varies greatly. So 52%, flip that around. So basically down 48% is what I'm saying compared to a year earlier. Right. Uh, looking again at Sirium here, uh, Allegiant, is only down 5% for September. I mean, Allegiant is nearly as big of an airline as of now. They could trim a few more flights here and there, but nearly as big of an airline as they were a year earlier. The other end of the spectrum right now, Spirit down 60%, United down 57%, JetBlue down 60%. Those are the ones that are down significantly more than half. American down about half, uh, just less than half. Delta also uh, less than half. Southwest also down 44%. So just interesting to see you've got those outliers. Allegiance, the real outlier in terms of being nearly as big as it was, but among some of the others, some of them still flying more than half of what they were and uh, some less. Interesting too, you might remember early on in the epidemic, American was flying a significantly larger percentage of its domestic schedule than Delta and United, which were kind of in lockstep. American was kind of doing more than half, Delta and United less. And now there's kind of a divergence there where American has become more conservative, but Delta is flying considerably more than what United is flying right now. Ben, I want to ask you about something else. I was on CNBC the other morning on Squawk Box because clearly I couldn't get you or whoever they really wanted that morning. I think I'm the guy, right? I must have been like the seventh guy on their list. They call, right? They call you. And then uh, anyway, when they just run out of options, they uh, they call me. And they asked me a question about the the possibility of airlines getting more aid, uh, another $25 billion or, or whatever, which of course is all still tied up in the political process. We don't know where that's going to go. We do know that there's a lot of support from, from various sides, uh, 
President Trump has said he supports airline aid. Democrats have, have said they support it. There's that group of Republican senators uh, who want a, a, just a much more fiscally conservative package that doesn't include a lot of things, including airline aid. But here, here's what I said. Um, they asked me sort of how much that matters. I said that in terms of airline financials, that the money maybe matters less than people said. And then I want to explain what I'm going to what I mean. For airline employees, it's hugely important because if the deal is that the airlines get another $25 billion and the string attached to that is that they protect jobs for another six months, obviously there's all kinds of impact for airline employees. But what I said is that because it's mostly a pass-through to employees and because you know, United for One has said, hey, if we don't get the money, we're just going to furlough up to 36,000 people and American also tens of thousands of people, other airlines less but, but still large numbers – that for them, they are maybe more agnostic than you would think in the sense that although they very much want to be able to keep their people employed, financially, if they don't get the money, they're just going to slash their labor costs. And what I said also, and, I'm, and this is the other piece I'm wondering if you agree with, is that because Southwest has basically said no furloughs through the end of the year, and because Delta has really committed to try to keep as many people employed as, as possible to a greater degree than other airlines, and they got more buy-in of their buyout package than uh, than others and so forth, that this question is actually bigger for those airlines. And that's counterintuitive because those are two that were two of the stronger airlines going into this crisis. But it's actually more important to them than it is to others because if you're just going to furlough enough people to save all the money that the CARES Act would have given you anyway, then you're more agnostic. Whereas if you're Southwest basically promising to keep people employed unproductively through the end of the year out of your own pocket – then the money is more important. Am, am I thinking about that the right way? I think you are. And let's throw JetBlue in there too. JetBlue uh, in their over 20 years in business has never furloughed anyone. Right. And, and oh, yeah. they were alive at 9-11 and the financial crisis, right? So I think for airlines that I don't want to say care about their employees more. I'm not saying that American and United don't care about their employees. Of course they do. Yeah. But who are maybe less clinical about, well, we don't get the money. We just have to let these people go and think more about it. I, I think it is harder for them. Now, I will say, Seth, I kind of agree with you that what you said on Squawk Box, meaning, I mean, where you said it, it's not the money's not as important because they have the ability to sort of self-help by just letting people go. I kind of agree with that. But the one thing that I think is missing in that and I actually wrote about this in Forbes yesterday, and it's there now for those who want to read it. I think what that misses is that I passionately believe that the economy is not going to recover without robust transportation. People and goods need to move for an economy to be humming. And so one of the big values of the government giving aid to airlines to keep employees on is that those employees stay current in their job. And those employees staying current in their job means that when the economy's ready for more air travel, they can launch it quickly and aren't delaying a recovery. So being able to recover quickly once there is a vaccine or a therapeutic or this great New York Times story I read yesterday that said now scientists may think that herd immunity comes when only 45 to 50% of the people have been inoculated. And they say that there may be parts of New York and other parts of the United States that are already there. 
I don't know yeah. if that's true, but it was in the New York Times, so I kind of yeah. believe it, right? It yeah. wasn't in the New York Post, right? It was in- <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so the point is, I think if the government wants to spend money to get the economy going, yes, they can put money in people's pockets. That's a good thing because get them spending. That that's great. Keep them current on their mortgage and their car payments and things. That's all good, but also. Investing in the infrastructure of the economy, which is moving goods and people, and the, the government's paying for air traffic control, it's paying for all these highways, it's it's paying for a lot of airports, the gov- local governments as well as you know federal governments are paying for airports. And so using all that facility is what's going to help bring the economy back. So investing in airline employment is investing in the economy because you're keeping everybody ready to go. And in that sense, I think it is important for American United, not just Southwest and JetBlue and others who might be more reticent to let people go. And I've got to ask you, uh, because there's somebody out there thinking, but what about restaurants? What about all these other troubled industries? Not enough money to go around to keep everybody employed fully because in the end we'd all just be taking it from ourselves to, uh, to 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 get back to ourselves right although i mean the government's borrowing money obviously is what's happening here but you say to somebody who makes that argument what when they say what about x y or z that those industries could argue that they're important for for other reasons well those industries are important for other reasons but what i would say is a, a hotel or a restaurant or something like that is a is what economists call, you know, a good or a service. Airlines economists call an intermediate good. And an intermediate good is something you do to make something happen. So other examples of intermediate good are like electricity, right? And yeah. uh, and air and things like that. And I'm not saying that airlines are as important as electricity and air. But my point is Food, air, water, shelter, <laughs> airlines, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to be that crazy. But what I'm saying <laughs> is that airlines are a more fundamental infrastructure to the economy rather than something you go do to stay in a hotel and you know for business or vacation or go eat at a restaurant. Those things are really important for the economy to recovery, and they can make their own case and probably very deservedly do deserve some sort of aid if, in fact, the government's going to spend money to keep the economy going. But my point is, is that building the infrastructure of the economy helps drive the whole economy back. And when American Airlines and United Airlines and Delta Airlines and Southwest and JetBlue and Frontier and Spirit and everyone are flying full, that's a national economic impact that no restaurant or no hotel on their own can do. Only the airlines can do that. Maybe yeah, I'm too bit. biased, but we are airlines confidential. <laughs> We're not the, restaurants yeah. confidential. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the world through airline colored glasses. I know we all are guilty of that sometimes, but uh, I don't know if that, that, that's such a terrible thing to be accused of. Well, Ben, time next for passengers behaving badly. But first, Seth, we want to thank Seabury Capital Group. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. 
Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaberry, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Ben, time for a listener call. And you might remember last week we talked about an incident that was kind of personal to me, and yet I kind of understood what the airline did in the situation, even though I would likely be the person caught on the other side of this. I uh, don't want to go through the whole thing again, but basically there was a, uh, a child who was old enough to be required to wear a mask, who wouldn't wear a mask. Uh, he is on the autism spectrum. He has sensory processing disorder, and he and his uh, mother and his, his uh, younger sibling, who was too young to have to wear a mask, were kicked off the flight. And I said, you know what, I, I, that, that could be me because I have a daughter who's on the spectrum and has sensory processing disorder. And right now, though, this virus is just the biggest threat facing a lot of us and that I just understand why airlines have stopped making exceptions because otherwise, if you're making exceptions, where do you stop and who are airlines to be the ones sort of trying to be the arbitrators of, of, of who uh, has, has a worthy excuse and who doesn't? Here's AJ from Greensboro, North Carolina. Hi, guys. I was listening to today's podcast about the Southwest flight from Houston with the child with the sensory disorder and the non-mask. might be a question, but also is a concern that maybe Southwest and the airlines need to read more into the ADA, which is the Americans Disabilities Act. Because once an airline sells a ticket to a disabled passenger, they do have to make reasonable accommodations for those passengers. I am a disabled individual who has flown on Allegiant, Southwest, JetBlue, American, Delta, and United. And with the information that I give them before I even get on the flight, they know my name, they know my seat number, and they know the general parameters of my disability. So someone who does have a disability not wearing a mask on a flight could, under the law, be considered a reasonable accommodation. Also, as a disabled passenger, I know that disabled passengers do have a few more flexibility with having disabilities. Also, I could give a recommendation that you guys can maybe share with some of the airline executives that you guys do know when it comes to something like this. I know here in North Carolina, the local IKEA, mandates masks, but if you do have a disability that prevents you from wearing a mask, they do take your name and number, which you would have in an airline reservation, but then they also put on a yellow wristband, which identifies to all of the IKEA employees that you are an individual that does have a disability that prevents you from wearing a mask. Southwest really should maybe look at that more as a legal aspect instead of how that case played out in Houston. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Thanks, AJ. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm not going to uh, try to argue the legalities here, but I do think the law, hopefully, the point of it is that it, it generally has something to do with, with what's just logically fair and just in society, too. I realize it doesn't always work uh, that way, as, as, as we've all learned, but but the, you know, the, but that is the point, right? To to, to try to make things fair uh, in the world, to codify that the ADA, which has been around now for what a quarter century, 
was an attempt to do that, uh, to make things fair for people who really struggled in society because the world didn't accommodate them. In many cases, people with physical disabilities. First of all, the, the Southwest employees who enforced that rule, they absolutely, based on the airline's policy, were doing what they were supposed to do. Uh, Southwest policy is everyone over two years old wears a mask, no exceptions. So, so that's what they were enforcing. So, so they definitely did not do the wrong thing because they don't have any latitude uh, to, to make a judgment call there. Uh, that was the problem a couple of months back. There were sort of too many judgment calls and, and uh, airline employees were in really tough positions. And their policies all vary a little bit, but basically they've all gotten a lot more strict. Some have still a few exceptions, rare exceptions. Uh, Southwest is one of those that says you simply have to wear a mask. In terms of what's right and wrong, again, aside from the legalities, I think the difference here, AJ, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, Ben, is that usually, although we all have to make some kind of sacrifice to help other people, to accommodate other people, and that's the point of the law, if, if it wasn't sometimes difficult, they wouldn't have to have a law. You know, we all pay something for there to be a ramp for somebody to get up up the ramp in a wheelchair, or we all have to wait an extra few minutes at a gate for somebody to get rolled aboard an aircraft in, in a wheelchair, or we all pay something more for there to be bigger bathrooms to accommodate people, right? There, there are costs for all of this. And we as a society have decided we're, we're okay with that. The difference here is that the person not wearing a mask could have this deadly virus, uh, you know, whether or not they have some kind of other disability. And I sort of think what's going on here is all of us collectively, whether we think about it consciously this way or not, saying, you know what, the most important thing now is is, is, is to get rid of this virus. And right now, if you have a, a number of people on an airplane who aren't wearing masks, who are just as likely to have the virus as anybody else, that's a problem for everybody else in a way it's not a problem for other people when we make these other accommodations, when we build a ramp or when we wait for somebody to be wheeled aboard an aircraft or when we do those other things. And so, again, back to, you know, and, and you know, this is me in this situation. I kind of feel like if that means that I have to just not travel by air right now and that there are other people who right now would make that decision that, you know what, because of this restriction, it, it's just not the right thing for me or my family – that I'm okay with that because on the other side, I don't want to be the person exposed to somebody who has COVID, or I certainly don't want older relatives and people more vulnerable than, than, than me even to be exposed to COVID because somebody else isn't wearing a mask, even if it's for some kind of a legitimate purpose, even if they have an excuse, even if they're not just making a political statement. What do you think, Ben? I think you're right, Seth. And yet I'm incredibly empathetic to AJ's very interesting question. He was... Yeah. You know, he was calm and he said that, you know, he has these issues and he talked about flying lots of airlines and how they've sort of accommodated in ways. The one thing he did say, he talked about sort of when he's, you know, at a store where they put the yellow band on so that employees would know that, you know, it's okay that that he didn't wear the mask at that point. The thing that I thought is, well, you know, but in a store, they can distance people. And they can walk away. And even when I've been in the grocery store, yeah. even when everybody's wearing a mask, mask, people still stay away from each other, right? Just because right. everyone's wearing a mask, you don't go bump into someone at the orange juice. You wait till they're done and then you go get your orange juice. Right. And, and the experts have made that clear that the, it starts with the distance. The mask is kind of an additional redundancy 
if you can't maintain the, the distance, but you should try to maintain the distance, which in a supermarket you well, you can do it better than you can on an airplane. That's well, yeah, and and in his yellow strap scenario, you could too. And so so yeah. I th- I think you're right. Let let me talk about a non-COVID issue where this also happens in the airline industry. So the FAA, who's responsible for safety of airlines, and now the question is, are they going to take on the role of biological safety as well as, you know, mechanical safety? It's one thing to say that the pilots are trained and the plane is can safely fly. It's another thing to say that people can be safe on board. But that's another issue. But but one of the things the FAA says is that to be safe, airlines have to prove that they can evacuate a plane in 90 seconds. Yeah. And in fact, with with some regularity, air, the FAA goes to a hangar with an airline and with a stopwatch and they fill the airplane and they see how quickly can people get out of this airplane, yeah. right? And yet, if... If someone said, I want to, I, Emirates, I want you, I want to buy all your seats, all 400 seats on your A380, and we're going to bring 400 people in wheelchairs. Now, the ADA would say you've got to accommodate people in a wheelchair, but there's no way you could get 50 people who need wheelchairs off in 90 seconds, let alone hundreds. Yeah. Now, fortunately, it never happens that a lot of people on the plane want a wheelchair. It's two, it's three, it's four, right? Something like that. So it yeah. never becomes an issue. But if it did become an issue, if in fact 50 or 60 or 70 people with wheelchairs wanted to go on a commercial flight, well, the airline couldn't operate that safely, according to the FAA. So do they go against the FAA safety regulation or they go against the ADA? Now, fortunately, they're never in that situation. But it brings up the point that the ADA doesn't say that no matter what, you have full accommodation, right? It says you make reasonable accommodation and you don't deny reasonable accommodation. And your point, which I think is right, is maybe right now, as difficult as it is to say, it's not reasonable to not wear a mask on an airplane because you don't even know if you're asymptomatic and have the this terrible virus and you could give it to someone. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling about it's that. It's tough. It's tough, really tough, tough to say no, that. I, 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 yeah. I, and thank you, AJ, uh, because obviously I have all the sympathy in the world. And, and we are facing tough. Th- it's not just, look, it's school, right? I mean, and, and I've seen it, you know, my kid can't do the distance learning like some other kids can. As hard as it is for everybody, it's even harder, you know, when they have certain issues. It, it, the, this stuff is all very tough. No easy answers. Well, time now for passengers behaving badly. Uh, speaking of people not wearing masks, and this is Clearly not someone who had a, a tricky situation like the like like the one we just talked about before. You know, sometimes we tell you about somebody who is arrested at their destination for behaving badly. Then there is 47-year-old Yolanda Yarborough, who didn't even make it that far. She was arrested during a layover at Phoenix on her way from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. She was flying American Airlines. She refused to wear a mask on the first flight. This happened in flight. So the airline put her on a list that said, you can't fly. And and lots of airlines have said they're doing this. So then she shows up at the connecting gate in Phoenix to go to Las Vegas. And the gate agents tell her that she can't get on the plane because she's on the no-fly list. She goes ballistic, ends up being arrested for assault, 
there in Phoenix where she probably nobody could bail her out, right? Because she's not at where she lives and she's not uh, at, at her at her destination. My question, Ben, I count six airlines who fly nonstop from Los <laughs> Angeles to Las Vegas. What in the world was she doing connecting in Phoenix? You know, that's funny. That's the first thing I thought too is doesn't everyone <laughs> – like if you're an airline in the U.S., aren't you required to fly Las, uh, Las Vegas? I to think Las so. Angeles? Yeah, it's an even more airtight law than the ADA. Yeah. No, well, no, that's right. And it's ridiculous that people are still sort of arguing with this fact that you wear a mask on board and that's just the right thing to do. Right? It, it, it's ridiculous. I think America did the right thing by not letting her on that second flight. They probably didn't want her in the Phoenix airport either without a mask on, I mean, right? But they did the right thing. And, and without consequence to not following, you know, CDC and other good guidelines, without consequence to that, you're going to have kind of this behavior more. So I think it's great. You know, we had the situation a week or so ago where Delta turned around a plane and went back to the gate when customers yep. didn't put on their mask. That was Bravo Delta. I think it's, you know, yes, it probably delayed everyone on the plane and that was unfortunate. But I think they they made the point that, look, we're not going to tolerate this kind of behavior on board. And American did the right thing here, too. This is absolutely a passenger behaving badly. You know, have respect for your fellow citizens. You don't know what's in those droplets coming out of your mouth and nose. You may not feel sick. You may not have a fever. That doesn't mean you're not carrying this disease. Yeah. Well, up next, another thrifty listener tries to get a buy one, get one when Airlines Confidential returns. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. That's www.clearme.com. Dot com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Time now for another question. Actually, two of them. And I've noticed, Ben, our, 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 our callers and our the people who write in like a good deal, right? They say, I've got a question. And then they try to sneak a second one in. And we're, <laughs> and we're suckers for that because we love you. You have lots of questions. So we try to get to all of them when we can. Uh, this is Hector in Barcelona who writes, as an airline management professional at an LCC, you may guess it from my location, he says. Voiling, maybe? Uh, exactly. The Barcelona, That's that would be the one. <laughs> and air transport lecturer at a university here in Barcelona. Very much enjoy listening to your podcast and to the interesting insights you provide. I have two questions for you. So I'll just read the first one, Ben. We'll answer that quickly and then get to the second. First one, how do you interpret the different approaches to capitalization followed by airlines worldwide? In Europe, so we've seen government bailouts, Air France, KLM, Lufthansa, and others, capital increases, at IAG, the parent company of, well, of whaling, as well as British Airways and others, right? Uh, with the Qatari role there. Or a more business-as-usual approach like Ryanair and Wizz Air. Ben, quickly, that question, and then we'll get to uh, Hector's second question. 
Well, I think uh, airlines need capital and airlines um, find different ways to get that. What airlines like Ryanair and Wizz Air have is very, very strong balance sheets from really well-run, profitable operations. They don't fly routes that don't make money, right? And, and they're willing to change their operation to continually make money. And Wizz and Ryanair are great examples of airlines that are that are managed for high profitability. So when something like this happens, doesn't mean it's easy for them. And it doesn't mean that travelers aren't are confident flying them and not confident flying someone else, right? Every airline's feeling is down, but they don't necessarily need to react to say, wow, we need a bailout or we need some sort of new capital to keep the airline alive. Compare that to state-run airlines like Alitalia, which has been a disaster forever, right? And not so much disaster, but still big, big state-run airlines like Lufthansa or Air France KLM, or at least, you know, maybe not state run, but have our sort of flag carriers. They are, they're heavier airlines, meaning they have higher costs and they can run into trouble more quickly. And they're fundamentally more important to that country's, you know, not only economy, but identity to have an airline there. So it's not surprising that governments would say, we want to keep you guys in, in, um, in shape. Air India is arguing to the Indian government, you need to do that for us. The Indian government's not doing that right now, yeah. right? So it's, it's not that like everyone in the world thinks like that. And then in the case of uh, Qatar's investment in IAG, well, Qatar's been investing in airlines all over the world. They own airlines in other parts of the world or own parts of airlines, and they've talked to lots of airlines about investing in them. So part of Qatar's strategy, not unlike Delta's, but for by comparison, is to invest in airlines where they don't have the route rights or the uh, exposure to otherwise benefit from that kind of market. And so Cutters investing in IAG is, I think, confidence that they believe IAG is a good set of airlines that's being well managed and they want to be part of that as an investment. And so I don't know that the cutter role has anything to do with COVID. I don't think it is. I think it has to do with them thinking that it's a good business. So I think you see airlines do what they need to do because of their business model. If they're struggling, they're going to look for capital anywhere they can struggle. If, they're, if they've managed their business to be long-term profitable and do the things regularly to keep the airlines profitable, like Orion Air or Wizz Air, then they can weather these kinds of things better. Doesn't mean they don't have challenges from these kind of times, but they can weather it better. And I think that I think that's what it is. I think different businesses have different sources available to them, but airlines need capital. Airplanes are expensive. Flying them is expensive. Fuel is expensive, even when it's cheap. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you know what I mean. If, yeah. if you know what I mean. Even when the price is cheap, you're yeah. still buying a lot of it, so it's expensive. And so. Um, Every airline's got to do what it has to do to stay in business and to figure out how to survive long enough so they can start growing again. Yeah. Hector mentioned Ryanair and Wizz Air should mention uh, here that S&P last week noted that EasyJet, another giant European LCC, one of the few airlines in the world still with an investment grade credit rating like Southwest and not too many others right now. Hector's other question quickly, Ben, he said, I've seen some ULCCs, speaking of those, being very bullish in rapid post-COVID capacity restoration, particularly those airlines in the Indigo Partners uh, family, that's Frontier, Valaris, was JetSmart, and the Ryanair, Irlandia, that's Ryanair and Viva Air. 
family have been growing above other players in the market. The general question, how the type of investor affects growth plans and whether there are implications for post-COVID ramp up. What do you think, Ben? Is that a philosophical difference among ownership groups or just different opportunities? I think it's different opportunities, but I think it's interesting that he points out sort of the the privately held group, although Valaris is a public company, even though Indigo owns part of them, and Wiz is also, sure, and Ryanair is also, right? right? And and so I think the issue is that lower cost airlines, which all of these are that he talks about, have a lower hurdle, right? They can, because their costs are lower, they can make money with fewer passengers on board and or with lower fares, versus their higher cost competitors. So they have an economic incentive to get more planes in the air more quickly. If they can generate cash with fewer customers than say Lufthansa or Delta, depending on your geography, can do, why wouldn't they put those planes in the air more quickly? They may also see that this is an opportunity to maybe grow our our relative share over time. Today, the high cost in the airlines, high cost airlines in the U.S. control about 80% of all the travel, lower cost airlines about 20%. It doesn't, wouldn't surprise me at all if, if the individual thinking of that 20% might, might end up saying that, hey, why don't we be a little bit more aggressive and maybe in the future we're 25% of the market instead of 20% of the market. So I think airlines who have low costs have used their low cost in the term I like to use is they've weaponized that cost structure, meaning they've used that cost structure to grow share, to grow when others can't, to buy airplanes when others can't, and to win when others are struggling. And so I think you see the airlines that have the lowest cost structures in the industry. And in the US, you know, that's carriers like Spirit and JetBlue and Frontier and and even Alaska versus American United Delta or even a Southwest. And in Europe, it's the Wizz Airs and the and in South America, it's Viva and JetSmart and airlines like that. And all of them are going to use their cost structure to say, we can fly more now because we can make money right now. We're used to making money with low fares. And because our costs are lower, we can make money with a little lower load right now, or at least generate cash. So they're using it to grow faster. You said Allegiant was flying 95% of their schedule. Yeah. They're very low cost and they don't have a lot of competition in a lot of the places they fly. So they're flying almost their full schedule right now. And why shouldn't they? If they can generate positive cash with their cost structure, they should absolutely do that. So it doesn't surprise me that the lower cost sectors of the industry are going to lead the industry out of this recovery because they're going to have the economic incentive to put the capacity out there. And and Allegiant traces its lineage kind of to that Ryanair or Landia fold as well. Uh, well, do you have a question for us? You can call 305-379-7429 and record a question or a comment like AJ did earlier. We'll play it on the air. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Fine or wine is next. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections for being a proud sponsor of the show. Hotel Connections is the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Usually, we look at sort of publicly 
filed complaints. Uh, but this time we have a complaint from a listener. Uh, or some somebody wants to know anyway. Is is it a valid complaint, Ben? You have uh, your namesake with, a, with a, any relation here? <laughs> no. Yes, uh, this is Ben from Boston. Unrelated. More than one Ben in the world. Who knew? Yeah. Can you believe that? Sorry, yeah. Okay. And Ben says, I was flying Air Canada from Madrid to Toronto with a 9 a.m. departure from Madrid. Since this was a stopover, I was enjoying my evening in Madrid, drinking quite a bit of sangria, and somewhere around 11 p.m. got onto the Air Canada app and checked in for my flight. At this point, the app informed me that the flight was delayed and that it would be departing at 10.30 a.m. I was excited since it's meant an extra hour and a half of sleep. As I got back to the hotel, I set my alarm 90 minutes later than planned, ready to sleep in. I bet you can guess where this one's going. <laughs> when I woke up the next morning, I checked my phone again on the way to the airport. My flight was now leaving at 9.45 a.m. Again, this was originally a 9 a.m. flight, I think. Right. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. instead of being instead of being at the airport two and a half hours early, I had only 45 minutes to catch my international flight. It added a whole wave of panic to my trip. I only slept in because the app told me 1030 the night before. I felt like they had pulled a bait and switch. What the heck, Air Canada? I ended up making my flight. And generally, I like it when airlines are transparent and proactive about delays. This is why I prefer United to American. I thought that was an interesting comment, actually. I also appreciate that Air Canada was doing their best to get the flight back to its original schedule. But I can't help but feel like by posting the delay so early and then later undoing it, they nearly wreaked havoc on folks like me who plan to use every last minute of sangria-induced sleep. Is this a (laughs) fine or wine, he asks. So the question is fine or whine, W-H-I-N-E, but uh, there is also some W-I-N-E wine <laughs> involved here, Ben. And I have every bit of sympathy for the other Ben because, look, I studied abroad in Madrid when I was a student. Uh, and I, I I can just – I mean that's an early night. If he was, if he was, if he was in bed before 6 in the morning in Madrid, like in Madrid, <laughs> if, you're, if you don't stay up late enough that – you're up when the metro reopens at six o'clock the next morning. You've gone to sleep too early, so I get that, that you got to make the flight. I get it, I get it, but uh, fine or fine, Ben. You know, he wrote this nice note, and his name's Ben. But I got to say, this is a wine, <laughs> and I'll tell and, I, and I'll tell you why, Seth. I would be willing to bet that when he checked in for the flight the night before and saw there was a ten thirty, he probably didn't look at this. And maybe it was really small on the phone. I know but what I, you're going to say. I, 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 bet said, <laughs> I bet it said something like, check this regularly because this may change. Right? Yep. And so when a flight's delayed, you can't assume that you can get to the airport really any later especially if it's an hour and a half delay. Delays happen for all kinds of reasons, crew reasons, maintenance reasons. They can find another captain quicker. They can fix the problem on the airplane more quickly, right? Those things can just happen. So while when he saw that delay for a 1030 flight, he should have said, great, maybe I can be a little more relaxed, maybe get up 30 minutes later, not 90 minutes later, maybe plan to get a really good, strong cup of coffee when he got to the airport (laughs) or something like that. But if your flight's at 9 o'clock, if they told you it's going to be 10.30, you got to assume it's going to leave sometime between 9 and 10.30. That's, 
that's the right way to think as a traveler because airlines are going to try to get it on time. And what they know at 1030 the night before might be different than what they know at 2 a.m. And it's possible that that new time had been posted while he was sleeping, not just when he woke up. And so I bet it told him, check this regularly because things may change. And his flight was scheduled at nine. So I got to call this a line. Am I too hard on the? Am I too hard on this, Ben? Seth, <laughs> look, airlines are like the doctor, right? They can be late, you can't be late, right? <laughs> That's basically <laughs> right. Right? If you show up like one minute late, they're all, they just throw their hands up like, "Well, we'll see if we get you sometime today." But uh, but but they can keep you lit waiting. Probably what happened there: a transatlantic flight coming across from North America, maybe strong tailwinds, right? They probably posted the delay the, the night before based on a late departure out of Toronto strong tailwinds and then they kind of got lucky with a quick turn on the other end and uh back yeah it, it's uh, look I've, i have every bit of sympathy for ben not only because of what i know about madrid but because i've been in that situation you know he's not the only person who's who's, who's ever cut it too close for a flight but you're right when you do that you do take that risk because they all have that word of warning that you mentioned well, well that's on- right but, but i'm glad he made his flight yeah, I, no, I am too. Glad he made I am too. Because it would be a tragedy <laughs> to be stuck in Madrid another day, right? <laughs> on, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.